Hello, and welcome to The Envelope from the Los Angeles Times, where we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the talents behind your favorite movies and TV shows. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Vieira. And I have to say, like, I was so, so excited when I found out we booked this week's guest. Mark, why don't you tell our listeners who you talked to? I spoke to Jessica Williams, and I have to say, I was pretty excited about it, too. You know, ever since she became the youngest correspondent on The Daily Show at age 22, as well as the first Black woman correspondent on the show, Jessica has just been this radiant talent. I mean, more than one profile of her has mentioned how quickly people feel like they know her, like she could be their friend. And from this conversation, it's easy to see why. She has a way of addressing complicated issues in her work in a way that feels positive and useful. And so it's no wonder that she's now getting such a claim for her role on the Apple TV Plus show Shrinking as Gabby, a therapist, in a practice with characters played by Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford. Listen, I watch a lot of TV, but the moment that Jessica is carpool karaoke with Harrison Ford to Sugar Ray's song, like, all-time greatest moments on TV. But selfishly, like, I hope you also talk to her about her podcast turned TV show, Two Dope Queens. You know, that podcast was such a staple in my car on the drive home from work back when we, you know, went into the office. Um, It had this way of making you feel like you were meeting them for happy hour, like the conversations were so loose and so funny. Like, I hope you talk to her about that. Oh, we definitely talk about Two Dope Queens, and and she had a lot to say about the kind of really special and really immediate dynamic that she had between her and her co-host, Phoebe Robinson. And Jessica and I also talk a bit about gardening. Oh. So let's get to it. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So Jessica... I understand the co-creators of Shrinking, Jason Siegel, Brett Goldstein, and Bill Lawrence, tailored the role of Gabby to you. What is that like? Like, is there a moment where you're like, this is what you think of me? Like, is it strange when people <laughs> say they have, you know, written something for you? <laughs> That's funny. Um, no, I, I, you know, I think they met with a few people and it was sort of this thing where in the first couple episodes, you don't really see Gabby, um, but they knew like whoever they hired that they wanted to tailor her. So I think I was one of a few that they considered. And then I remember having a really, really good initial meeting. Like it was super long. Like we talked about everything from therapy to basketball and I just remember being like, oh, that was actually really nice. Like, I really got along with them. They were all really cool. Like, good luck with the project. Like, I hope it goes well, you know, whatever happens. I just walked away really liking them. And then I think maybe the next day they said they wanted to work with me. And what was great and what I was most excited about was Bill Lawrence and and Jason and Brett. They were all just like, yeah, we want to, you know, right to your sensibilities and you can improvise on set, you know? And so we want to figure out who Gabby is together. And initially with Gabby, they knew a couple of things. They knew that they wanted her to balance out Paul, who's played by Harrison Ford, and Jimmy, who's played by Jason Siegel at the office. So they knew they wanted her to be sort of a counterbalance to them. And so we knew she was kind of a bubblier person. And then we kind of filled her in around that. What was great was that even when we had our table read, 
Bill Lawrence was like, my rule usually is that you as the actor are in charge of your character. And if you feel like something doesn't make sense for the character, if you feel like you'd rather not do that or you would like to do something, you know, like you have free reign because I trust you with the character. So that was really exciting. And that literally was what it became on set. It was a really kind of magical experience on Shrinking. You know, your main co-stars on the show, Jason Siegel, Harrison Ford. On the one hand, Jason certainly knows his way around a sitcom, and then Harrison Ford is, you know, Harrison Ford. What was that like, you know, in sort of those early scenes? Because if nothing else, I would imagine those two people have very different energies. And, like, how did you sort of figure out how to kind of navigate with the both of them? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. Like, nobody's asked me that before. Um, But they do. They do have two different energies, like completely. And so in the beginning, I was really nervous about that. I mean, I'd already seen all of Jason's stuff for the most part, and Harrison's too, I guess. But I guess I just did some light rewatching. But I found that on my first day, one of our first scenes was the three of us in the kitchen. And that was really helpful because I found that we all had a pretty quick dynamic that we could understand. And with Gabby, who I play, and and Jimmy, who Jason plays, they both sort of turn into siblings when they're around Harrison's character of Paul. And they both sort of kind of talk shit to each other and um, sort of kind of try and vie for Paul's affection, which I don't think is that far off from when people usually meet Harrison Ford. Like, you probably just want (laughs) to have him pat you on the back and tell you, you did decent. Like, you kind of just want him to tell you you did a decent job at minimum. And so that really fueled us. And I, we figured out our dynamic really quickly. Sometimes I think when you're doing the first season of a show, especially the first few episodes, it is this really kind of gentle experience of trying to figure out if we all work well together and if these characters make enough sense. And luckily, they did. They did make sense. And Jason was really easy to kind of lean on as far as how he's used to doing comedy stuff. And I feel like he was a very good team captain for all of us on the show. And it was really fun to kind of ha- like he just kind of had my back and he had all of our backs. And so it was really nice to kind of know pretty quickly that I had that support. And especially in regards to trying to figure out Gabby and Paul's dynamic with Harrison, too. Because given your background in improv, how is Harrison Ford as an improv partner? Mm, He's good. I mean, Harrison Ford is really funny, and he's always been funny. I think the reason why his, you know, most famous characters work, Han Solo's funny, India's funny, you know? He had it. I wasn't worried about that, like, at all. And you know, who am I to be worried about the legend, you know? But, you know, he was good. He's he's a giving actor, too. Like, he's just a damn good actor. And in the beginning, it took me like a day to get used to his face because, you know, it does, it is a little bit of an adjustment period realizing, you know, just how good of an actor he is and how gorgeous he is and how seared into my mind his existence is simply from being alive in America and liking film. And so once I got used to that, It was a no-brainer. And I think one of my favorite, my most favorite relationships on the show is Gabby and Paul's relationship. And um, there was just a lot of meat on the bone, as some people say. Mm -hmm. It it wrote itself 
Gabby and Paul, I think. It didn't. We have amazing writers. But it, as an actor, it was such a gift to be able to do those scenes with Harrison. Like you have this millennial Black lady and, you know, this this older white guy in his 80s. That's a really fun relationship that you don't really see on camera. And one thing I like so much about the show is the way that there are kind of all these different pairings of characters. And like, for example, the scene where your character Gabby goes to her ex-husband's art show and mm. you get these great moments both with the character of Liz and the character of Sean. And then you have this sort of meltdown. First of all, a scene like that, how like how much of that is improv? Like, do you guys kind of workshop stuff before you're shooting? Or like, how did something like Gabby's meltdown come about? I was really, really excited by the time we got to those later episodes because we were finally able to start mixing and matching our characters. And one of the things, even before I signed on to do the show, is they knew that Gabby and Liz would become really, really good friends. And I'm really, really proud of that because I, I love working with Krista. And I also just think that that Luke Tenney, who plays Sean, is just an incredible actor. And so I was really excited to be able to kind of break off with them. And that episode is directed by Zach Braff, who has a longstanding relationship with Krista and Bill Lawrence from Scrubs, because um, Bill Lawrence created Scrubs as well. And um, Zach really understands comedy and comedic beats. Now, with the breakdown that Gabby had, it's sort of like a who told who thing, because a lot of that was improvised, but I thought somebody jumped in and told me to say that um, my ex-husband loved thumbs in the butt, but the writer said nobody wrote that. I shouldn't do this, but I will. No, don't. I'm not going to key shame, but maybe I will. No. He loves thumbs in the butt. All right. It was nice that meeting was a you. part of all the work I did. I put thumbs in the butt. Yep. It was nice he meeting you. Sometimes I would put two thumbs in his butt. Thank you. Oh, Sorry. Oh, it was a lovely event. Lovely. I mean, y'all just, y'all killed this shit. I said one of the writers told me that because I didn't make that up. But they're kind of putting it back on me. So I genuinely don't know what parts of that breakdown begin with me and begin with the writing or ends, but it just became what it became. And that's just one of those things where you just try and stay as present as possible and you just kind of get in this flow state and you just kind of go. And I've always loved, like, I tried out for my school's improv team when I was 14, when I was in high school. And I love not knowing what's going to happen. And had that in high school. I had that when I did comedy sports in college and Upright Citizens Brigade. And then I had it when I got The Daily Show at 22. And then I had it when I did Two Dope Queens in New York. And I love not knowing what's going to happen. It really excites me to be a little scared. And it excites me to kind of black out and be so present with my partner that I don't know what's going to happen. And now that I'm in my 30s, I feel like I really honed in on that. And I really came back from doing Fantastic Beasts, which was a very rigid movie where you were, you have to stick to the script. And then I jumped into Love Life, which was this really elastic sort of thing where we developed this character that I played together. And it was really like the first time that I felt like I was a slightly older actor that had honed in on what she wanted to do. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that you feel like you've developed that skill, that it's something that's kind of come through all your experiences. Because I'll be honest with you, Jessica, I don't really understand acting. Like, I don't know how it 
works exactly. And the idea of being that sort of present and open to what's happening, but while in character, like freely reacting as Gabby, that's to me is the dark art. Like that's the thing I can't that's really quite funny. get my head around. Everyone does it really. There's just no secret. Like everyone does it differently. And I think it's like on this job about doing comedy in this aspect and about being Gabby is it's about, um, she's a really present heart on her sleeve person. So she's about being open. And so it's about improvising within the confines of the scene. When I learn the lines the night before or the morning of, I try not to overrun them, but I like to have in my head three different responses that I would do three alternative lines to each line. And I try and really focus on the intention of the scene. And Bill Lawrence really likes to get, he calls it getting the base. So I'll give them the the lines. I'll give them the lines in the first few takes. And then he's just like, then go nuts. And usually they found that on this show, for me, for Gabby, they would just use the go nuts lines. And now one thing as well that I like so much about Gabby, and I hope this doesn't sound silly, is she has great outfits throughout the show. That's like, not silly. And that's, I feel like it says a lot about the character. And I'm curious, like, how much of her sort of, like, look and vibe on the show do you feel like you're allowed to have input on? A lot. I got to work with Allison Fanger a lot. Um, I think costumes and wardrobe, uh, they're doing just great work. It's like, you almost shouldn't notice that the costumes, you know, but they should be, like, in your subconscious as a viewer. And it's a really delicate line to walk. And so I know for me, I really care about fashion and I love the wardrobe helps me understand the character better. So whenever like Alison Fanger wanted to do a fitting, I was there, like whatever she wanted. I was like, yes, whatever you need. And for Gabby, they always knew she wanted her to be bright and colorful. And when I met with Bill and and Brett and Jason, they said that it was important to the writers that whenever you saw Gabby on screen, you'd be like, holy shit, I want a therapist like that. Where did she get that? You know, where'd she get that outfit? I was really lucky because we worked a lot with this local LA company called Big Bud Press, and they do these really amazing, really inclusive, kind of really colorful jumpsuits, and they make them in just great sizing. Because I'm like, as a woman, I'm like a size 14, 12, 16. I'm like a, I think it'd be called midsize or curvy or whatever, who gives a shit, but it was really important for me to see her be cute on screen and look like me and my friends. A lot of what Gabby wears is at a great price point. Like that's more accessible than when you're watching TV and you're like, what the fuck are they wearing? Why are they so together? That is so expensive. Like, it's like, no, we don't want to do that. She's just like a lady. You know, we didn't want to show something that felt aspirational and rich. We wanted to show something that just felt aspirational and doable for her. You know, the show is about these therapists and has like a really interesting take on sort of a therapist-client relationship. And you've talked often about your own experiences with therapy. And I'm wondering how that kind of has impacted your relationship to the show. Uh, Yeah, I've done loads of therapy. I go in and out with my therapist that I've had for about eight years, and I love her. She always has me check in with myself. She makes me a more thoughtful person. Um, it's just such an important thing for me in my day-to-day. And so with Shrinking, I was really excited to to play a woman whose profession has really been a big part of my life for the last eight or nine years. And it's affected me in that I feel 
a little more self-aware, hopefully. And now there was an article that Aisha Harris did for NPR's All Things Considered that was about this kind of TV trope of the Black lady therapist. Mm, And mm. I'm curious kind of how you related to that idea and if there were ways in which you did or did not want Gabby to sort of fall into, like, what some of those more typical versions of that Mm. that character might be. Mm, Yeah, that's a great article. There was also, like, a really interesting discussion on Twitter about it that I thought was really cool. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that is a, a version of the magical Negro trope, which is, like, another trope in film and TV that's like a Black person that feels cozy enough that you can tell all your problems to and and that they'll kind of take care of you, like a Black nanny or something, which is like another trope. And they don't have an inner life or inner world of their own. And it's sort of this profession that allows you to get kind of comforted and coddled by a Black woman, which I think there is a part of society that really responds to how cozy we seem. I don't know, maybe it goes back to us being caretakers a lot of the time or the help in households, which is really fascinating and really interesting. I think with Gabby, um, the reason why I wanted to do it, knowing about that trope was, I knew that they were all therapists and that Jason was a therapist and Harrison was a therapist and Gabby was a therapist and that Gabby was quite messy. And I think one of the keys to breaking any trope or stereotype is to attack things with specificity as much as possible. Specificity, specificity, specificity. And I think knowing before I signed on that I'd be able to improvise meant that I was going to be able to listen to pop punk in my car in a scene and sing Sugar Ray with Harrison Ford because I do those things on my own. And I was able to bring that to the character and that in its own breaks out of a trope because it's specific. And then not only that, but then the white people in charge, you know, both on the show and both at the network need to allow room for the Black actors, the people of color, the queer people to breathe on screen. I got really lucky because there's not a lot of environments for Black people to do that. There is this thing where people will hire minorities or others and say, okay, now you have to be mixed or, okay, now you have to be within these confines. Now you have to play this trope, which, you know what? Shout out to every Black person, woman of color that's had to get on screen and play a therapy trope because I don't want to invalidate that experience because you had to freaking get on screen and you had to fucking work. I don't want to slip into that slippery slope of invalidating those that have come before that have had to play those parts because I think that's bullshit. You know, that's that's being too hard on our people. However, mm-hmm. now that we're aware of the trope, that means that the white people in charge have to let us breathe. They have to let us exist. They have to let us live. They have to let us be awkward and quirky and funny and confused. They have to give us the opportunity to sing Sugar Ray with Harrison Ford. They have to ask you, what do you want to sing with Harrison Ford? I was like, Sugar Ray. They're like, great, we're going to do that. I know it's not fun, but I'll see if I can use it for a weekend or a one-night stand. Couldn't understand how to work it out. Now, Shrinking is a show that, you know, at its core explores grief. And that's something that it's not an easy topic to tackle because on the one hand, it's very relatable, but it's also something that's extremely personal. Gabby, the character, is going through a lot of different 
issues, both the sort of the grieving her marriage and grieving her best friend. And yet she's so often kind of the energizer of things. She is this supportive character for other people. And was it difficult for you to sort of like create space for the character of Gabby to address her own emotions, to have her own sort of grief on the show, that she wasn't always having to support everybody else? No, I was, it was, I'm a very emotional person. I cry, you know, all the time now. I think as an actor, it's important for me to be like open to however I'm feeling on the day. Like, I think when I was a younger actress, you wanted to be tough, you know, like it was like, especially as like a woman of color, but that doesn't serve me. And then I personally like have had my own grief and like I had a boyfriend die like a few years ago of a heroin overdose and you know, I'm grieving all the time. Some days it's good, some days it's bad. But I know I came out of that experience having had a profound sense of loss. And I like had a palette, a painter's palette, and then I came out with different colors. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. grief settles in and it just changes you. It doesn't leave. It just makes a home in your body. And so um, I, ever since that happened, I'm especially, especially always open to a hug. I'm always open to laughing or crying. Like it doesn't bother me at all. And so to play Gabby, it was actually more of a cathartic experience where we needed each other. It was a delight. It's like the best, one of the best jobs I've ever had was, was playing her because emotionally I really understood her and I was able to go and do comedy. And sometimes I would just do hard comedy as Gabby. And then sometimes I would I would just be emotional as Gabby and sad and grieving. It was just such a blessing of a role because I got to explore all the facets of Gabby, which also helps break her out of that, you know, Black female therapist trope too. More with Jessica Williams after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow The Envelope wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with actor Jessica Williams. Jessica, I find it striking how comedy is so often a way to tackle really hard topics, but also prompt more thoughtful and meaningful conversations. Looking back at your career from The Daily Show, Two Dope Queens, and now Shrinking, how do you find balance between entertaining with humor, but also engaging audiences on a deeper level with these very real social and emotional issues? Hmm. I think a lot of people actually do have this, especially people of color, queer people, women that have to, you know, have to straddle a line in their day-to-day -day of just kind of what comes with living in a complicated society. I think in my head, as I get older, I think we will always have this struggle between what you would consider like good and evil or right and wrong. Sometimes I see it as a tug of war where, you know, like people are tugging in one way and, you know, for a few years, it's this. And then we're tugging in the other way, as opposed to one day in the immediate future, everything's going to be taken care of. And so there's like this interesting gray area that we all live in where when you're sad, actually things can be profoundly funny. And like, I know when my ex-partner passed and I watched, you know, when he died, it was beyond sad. Like I literally thought I would die because I was so sad, but around that time, things were actually really, really funny that made me laugh. 
you know, and and also just being a person that, you know, living in a society that, you know, you have the pandemic, which is incredibly sad. People are always dying, you know, which is always really sad. And most times things are unresolved. You're still laughing sometimes, hopefully, or you're finding moments to smile. And I think that sort of speaks to where we are as far as, you know, how complicated the experience is of being alive right now. And I think now with what's on TV, that's sort of the state of modern television is exploring that idea that things can be everything. Like, you know, literally the the most popular movie last year was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Like, it's like this sort of dynamic kind of existence that we live in where things can be happy and sad and scary and funny and sexy and silly all at the same time. And now your podcast turned HBO special, Two Dub Queens, you know, it paired you with Phoebe Robinson and the two of you had such a great dynamic together. Was that difficult to find? Like, was that just the two of you together or was that something you had to really work to figure out what that dynamic was going to be? No, she and I, you know, I remember doing my first show with her. We were like, whoa, that was really fun. We should do that again. Like sometimes with chemistry, you can fake it, actually. I do. You can. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's your job as an actor is to make it work, you know, no matter what. And I, I in particular pride myself on be able, being able to create chemistry with, with anyone. I really work hard to do that. Um, and sometimes you just have to fake it till you make it. But when it's real, when it's really real, you can't, you just can't fake it. And with her... It was one of those things where if you're in the zone, if we're in the zone where it's like flying, it's like you don't know what's going to happen, which is that thing that I like. It's like when you have chemistry with another performer, especially Two Dope Queens, the format was that we were just talking. And to be able to go from doing live shows every week, you know, and then selling them out for years and then getting HBO comedy specials and selling out the King's Theater, which is a huge theater in Brooklyn, and doing eight of those and selling out those shows, it speaks to how special it is to get chemistry with someone. And it makes you feel like you belong somewhere and you belong with someone. And it, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's like the best feeling. It's like a high almost. Like, it's like the best. And then the Fantastic Beasts movie that you've uh-huh. been in, uh-huh. that so much of what you've done has been like on a smaller scale, like kind of indie stuff. And yeah. what was it like for you to step into like, the biggest budget movies you can kind of go in. Like, that must have been a real change of pace. Yeah, that was insane um, doing that because that was, like, my first, like, at the highest level, like, doing a movie like that. Like, I had my own huge trailer, which was insane. We had, like, a chef that makes us food and whatever you ask for. And I left that job a better actor because I did that job for about five months and I got to watch... You know, there's something to English actors. Like, I got to live in London, which was freaking amazing. I've had a Harry Potter tattoo for many years. And I was now in this universe. I was working with Colleen Atwood, who is just one of the greatest costume designers of all time. I got to be on these sets that were the size of small cities, you know, that were like two to to three stories tall. And every detail was thought of. And we had the budget. They would be like, like David Yates would be like, and then you're going to disappear. And I'd be like, do we have the budget for that? And he'd be like, ha, 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 yes. You know, like, yes, we do have the budget for special effects, you know. And so that was a profoundly, you know, shaping experience for me. Like, 
And you had to stay on the lines. Like I didn't get the crutch of being able to riff and do improv, which for me is can be a bit of a crutch because it's almost like kind of collaborating and rewriting, you know. And then just watching people up close like Jude Law and Eddie Redmayne, just kind of like BAFTA dudes, like BAFTA boys, you know, just really working up close. Like Mads Mikkelsen, I got to watch act, you know. Just being able to watch them, I learned so, so much. I walked away learning the space you could ask for. And like, because those are really serious actors, quote unquote, because they're like award-winning actors. And they're polite. They're very nice and very lovely. But I learned about what it's like to carve space for your process. And I learned what it's nice to kindly ask for, for your process at the highest, highest, highest level. If I'm not getting space to quietly prepare for this scene, you know, pull the director aside or the producer aside and ask for what I need. Or I'm going to wait till we're wrapped and I'm going to kindly ask for what I need. And I learned that watching really, really, really good, really polite, really kind English actors work because they're craftsmen, they're men of the craft. Hmm. And now given that, and also knowing that you've been a fan of the Harry Potter books for so long, is there now a difficulty for you, the controversy around J.K. Rowling and her continued comments about the transgender community, is that something that's difficult for you now to reconcile? I think, like, without question, in the bottom of my heart and gut, there is just no, like, question at all that trans lives matter and that it's like, it doesn't make sense for me as a woman of color, minority, Black person to be pushing for the safety of myself without looking around and pushing for the safety and thought and equal rights of others. I wasn't raised like that. That doesn't register to me. I literally just fundamentally in my heart believe in the validity of trans people. And I I hope that with my work, like that that is something that is very clear and that that never comes into question. And so, yeah, I mean, I just don't agree in any way, shape or form. And as an actress, it's like tough because I'm like separating my work from the energy around the work. That, like, for me, being a part of this big kind of machine in this big world, which is, like, a network and a studio and, you know, a creator, you know, it's a really, really tough position as just an actor in the whole thing to be a part of and an up-and-coming actor. It is really, really tough just because at the core of my being, I just don't agree. Hmm. And now when you... We're on The Daily Show, and Jon Stewart was leaving. There was a lot of people who, like, wanted you to take over the show or to be considered for host. And you, like, very pointedly at the time said, like, you did not want that job. And I've always been curious, like, how how you look back on that decision now, like, from where you've kind of gone in the years since then. How do you feel about making that decision then now? I think I made the right choice. I don't want it. That's a hard job. It's a grind. And also, nobody really knows what they're talking about. If anybody's seen what the job is like, it sure as fuck is me. You know what I mean? Like, if anybody knows the intricacies in all of the worlds of that job, it's everyone that's worked at that job. And to me, like, especially for John, like, that's what the money's for because you're working long hours. You're watching the news, which is depressing. That's not good for... I'm gentle. 
that's not good for me to watch the news all the time. I'm very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Like, I just can't. It's not good for me. I need to go be like Brawless in my backyard and like paint and listen to like Animal Collective in my backyard. Like, that's the life that I need to do, you know? It's also like I ran into somebody that was like, yeah, but we love John. Like, why isn't he running for president? And then it's like, because that's like a shitty job. That job sucks. Like, (laughs) or like, oh, Michelle Obama, why isn't she running for president? Because she already, she's seen how it is to be, you don't know what it's like to be the president of the United States. You just don't. That job probably sucks, like really badly. You can't go anywhere. You got to stay in this big White House, which for all intents and purposes, for all the photos I've seen, looks busted. The White House doesn't look like it's designed that well. It looks ugly. You're stressed. You have to have a Secret Service follow you around all the time. Everyone's mean to you. Like, everyone's talking shit. You're not making your constituents happy. You're not making... Like, no. It's like nobody knows what they're talking about unless they're in it. Not really. You're just saying opinions. Late night is a hard job. You do it every night. That mm-hmm. There's only seven or eight people that do it right now. It's not an easy job. It's just not. And now, do you have some idea of what you have kind of coming up? I know a lot of things are in flux for a lot of people right now, but like, could we expect more from the two dub queens? No, no, no two dub queens coming up. But I do, you know, we got our second season of Shrinking and we were supposed to be filming it now, but we do have this writer's strike. So we're just kind of waiting. And that's kind of the biggest thing. I have a movie coming out at some point in 2024. And now I'm just kind of waiting for the next thing. It's just, I'm I'm not nervous right now. I can pay my mortgage. And uh, I really want to do stuff that speaks to my skill set now because um, I just got this incredible experience of shrinking And it really, I learned so much on this set about what my process is. Also that, like, I want to have in my dream world, because I'm from here where I live now. I just moved back from New York. All my family's here. My friends that I've known since elementary, middle school, high school, and college are here. I want work-life balance. I don't want my life to just be Mm -hmm. acting. I'm happiest when I'm bullshitting with my friends at a bar down on York, I'm happiest doing inside jokes with my friends on a on a duffy, like a small boat floating around in Newport Beach, you know? And so I want to do that. I, I want to be happy in my home with my friends and my loved ones while doing really rewarding work. But I just want to like have a sandwich with my friends, I think. <laughs> I want to laugh with my friends and then be able to put that into my work. Well, Jessica, I have to say that I uh, I follow you on Instagram. Oh, I'm following and I'm a you. Huge I'm going to follow you. Oh, I'm a huge fan of all your home renovation and in particular gardening content. I love your garden so much. Thank you. And I always enjoy it when you post photos from your garden. Thank you. It's really important to me. I looked for a really long time for a landscape designer. She's just a badass. Her name is Sarita. And I'm obsessed with her. And we work together, you know, to create the garden. And, and now I can tell you everything. It's a mostly California native garden. So I get bees and butterflies and it smells like salvia after the rain. And the coolest thing she taught me is the most progressive thing you can do is decolonize your front yard, which is a lot of times 
in the 50s when they were building front yards at the birth of suburbia, they were modeling their the lawns, the traditional lawn after England and, and those parks. And those are traditionally kind of white-centric, European-centric yards. And so what's cool is imagining our landscape in Southern California or wherever you live as how it was when, you know, the Native people lived here and doing your best to plant as much as possible plants that are native to California because they'll do better. They're meant to be here. And so that mm. was a really interesting concept that she taught me about, you know, you don't just want to have like roses, roses, roses. I mean, that's gorgeous. But are there California, you know, native wild roses? Yes. Then maybe plant that because that's like kind of decolonizing your garden. And it makes it easier for all of the animals that live here. And you don't have to spend so much on water and it's just naturally gorgeous. Uh, <laughs> your face is so funny right now. <laughs> well, no, I think, uh, you know, I'm just really appreciating what you've been saying. And honestly, I'm thinking a bit about my own lawn right now. So <laughs> it's just, Jessica, I'm so excited for more gardening content from you. Oh, I'm so glad. Anytime. I appreciate that. The show is shrinking. Jessica Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. It is produced by Taya Francesca Price and Mara Laser. It's edited by Mitra Caboli and Lauren Rapp. This episode was mixed and mastered by Mario Diaz. Our executive producer is Hiba Elorbani. Our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Viramontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. See you next time.